and welcome to the podcast version of COS Live. You can watch the original live broadcast on Convention of States Rumble, YouTube, Facebook, and X. And now, here's COS Live. A resolution calling on Article 5 of the United States Constitution for the convening of a Convention of States. Chairpersons and fellow committee members, I come to discuss a matter of profound importance to our Commonwealth and our nation, the support of resolutions calling for a convention of states under Article 5 of the United States Constitution. The Constitution, a timeless testament to the vision of our founding fathers, provides two methods for its amendment. One is through Congress, another is through a convention of states. Today, we consider the latter a powerful yet cautiously used mechanism designed to ensure that the ultimate sovereignty in our republic rests with the people through their states. In advocating for a convention of states, we reaffirm the fundamental principle that states are crucial custodians of our democracy. This process empowers states to address critical national issues, ensuring that local voices are not just heard, but are instrumental in the constitutional process. Our nation faces challenges unforeseen by our predecessors, whether it's fiscal responsibility, term limits, or other pressing national issues, a convention of states offers a platform to address these concerns directly, reflecting the evolving aspirations and needs of our citizens. Concerns regarding the scope and nature of such a convention are valid. However, history and legal framework provide guidance. Clear precedents, rules, and the requirement of ratification by three quarters of the states serve as robust safeguards against potential excess. 19 states have already passed the Convention of States resolution. We need 34 states to get a convention and it takes 38 states to ratify any amendments that are proposed. As citizens of Massachusetts, a state with a rich history of leadership and innovation in our nation's founding and development, we have a unique responsibility. Our support for an Article 5 convention is not just a procedural stance, but a continuation of our enduring commitment to active and thoughtful participation in the shaping of our union. Our involvement ensures that the values and concerns of our Commonwealth are part of this vital national conversation. In light of these considerations, I urge my esteemed committee and my fellow legislators to support the resolutions for an Article 5 convention. In doing so, we take a step towards addressing the pressing needs of the issues of our time through a process that embodies the principles of federalism and democratic engagement enshrined in our Constitution. Thank you for your attention to this matter, this considering of a pivotal step in our nation's ongoing journey towards a more perfect union. I respectfully ask for a favorable vote on H3541. Thank you, Chair. All right, next up, we are now moving into panels. So panel three, Convention of States, I have Jessica Burchin, Barbara Brenton, Steve Cloutman, 
and Don Cole, and I am going to apologize as we get into this. I will no doubt mispronounce many people's names, so please don't take offense. I would just like to thank the committee for allowing me the opportunity to speak today. On behalf of H3541, I am Jessica Burchin, and I am from West Springfield. Ladies and gentlemen of this committee, the resolution before you, H3541, provides the general court with another opportunity to reaffirm the Commonwealth's traditional role in securing and advancing first principles of self-government. The principles of government by consent of the governed have been articulated in these halls, just these halls in Massachusetts, by the most renowned and celebrated statesman of Massachusetts. Just prior to his January 1961 inauguration as 35th president of this republic, John F. Kennedy addressed a joint session of the general court. He reminded the assembly that during his time as United States representative and senator, he had, quote, been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arbella. We must always consider that we shall be a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, end quote. Those members of the Joint Committee on Veterans and Federal Affairs who voted to move this resolution for broader consideration here embodied another historic standard recalled by the President-elect. Quote, for what Pericles said to the Athenians has long been true of this commonwealth. We do not imitate, for we are a model to others, end quote. President-elect Kennedy argued that public officials would be measured by, among other qualities, whether you, quote, we're truly men of dedication, with an honor mortgaged to no single individual or group, and compromised by no private obligation or aim, but devoted solely to the public good and the national interest." End quote. We believe that calling a convention of states to limit the power and scope of the federal government is in full service to the public good and national interest. Now, you have the opportunity to build upon the foundation established by your colleagues to meet the historic standards set by this state and truly make Massachusetts a model to others. Thank you again for allowing me this time, and I strongly urge you to vote favorably to pass this through the committee. Thank you. Hello, my name's Barbara Brenton. I'm from Halifax. Ladies and gentlemen of the committee, I thank you for this opportunity to give testimony in support of H3541, calling for a convention of states. By any objective measure, a significant and significantly growing majority of Americans believe that our republic has veered completely off course, far afield from the principles and limitations established by the United States Constitution. Not only has the federal government long strayed from its enumerated powers, but it has also become totally incompetent. That incompetence can be measured in wasted lives, trillions of wasted dollars, and debt. And the erosion of the liberty of, Americans, of, the Amer of every American citizen. Instead of a limited government dedicated to sustain an orderly ordered liberty, the federal government has descended into a lawless oligarchy that regularly abuses its power and divides the citizenry. Too many in the federal government, regardless of the party, act as rulers rather than representatives and see constituents not as fellow citizens but as subjects who are to be mastered. This is in spite of the fact that, as a philosopher Russell Kirk wrote, 
Quote, our Constitution is Republican, designed to secure the public good through the sharing of political power among many people, end of quote. In this republic, the people are sovereign. And now, in great and growing numbers, the people are prepared to peacefully and lawfully reclaim our authority. That reclamation begins with utilizing the constitutional mechanism put in place to address the expansion of federal power and the abuse thereof. This document is submitted as testimony in support of H3541 to advance the activation of Article 5 of the United States Constitution for the purposes of calling a convention of states to discuss and propose amendments limiting the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government. It will explain the origin and purpose of Article 5 and some of the reasons why supporters of a convention of state believe it is necessary and what you are being asked and not asked to do. So I thank you very much all again for allowing me to give this testimony today in support of H3541 and would appreciate a yes vote supporting the resolution. Thank you. Good afternoon, committee members. Thank you. My name is Stephen Cloutman of Hanson. It's an honor to speak before you in favor of H3541. Article 5 of the Constitution provides the sovereign citizens through our state legislatures the method by which to return to first principles of a balanced and limited government. Put crudely, Article 5 is the break glass in case of emergency option for the states. We are in such an emergency. Article 5 outlines two methods for amending the Constitution. The second is our focus. It states that Congress, quote, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several straight states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, end quotes. Years prior to the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Virginia, Virginia delegate Colonel George Mason had written the initial draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the first document in history that recognized the rights of the individual citizen as sovereign. During the Constitutional Convention, Mason insisted upon preventing what could be termed as a runaway Congress from blocking the right of the people to amend the proposed Constitution. The notion that the states, without interference from Congress, would have the ability to rebalance constitutional order was presented as part of the Virginia Plan, which was authored by James Madison and heavily influenced by Mason. John Adams would echo this vital emphasis on balance in the construction of the federal government in his work, Defense of the Constitution, to which this document will later refer. Some delegates to the convention believed that any such language as contained in the Virginia plan to be unnecessary. However, as Madison noted, quote, Colonel Mason urged the necessity of such a provision. The plan now to be formed will certainly be defective as the Confederation has been found on trial to be. Amendments will therefore be necessary, and it will be better to provide for them in an easy, regular, and constitutional way than to trust chance and violence. It would be improper to require the consent of the national legislature because they may abuse their power and refuse their consent on that very account." End quote. Mason, ever skeptical, skeptical of overarching centralized power and all too familiar with the temptation of mortal men when met with wielding such power, would not be moved. 
He emphatically asked, why would a central government that becomes tyrannical ever propose legislation or amendments to restrain its tyranny? I thank the committee for its time, and I urgently ask for your support of H3541. Thank you. Now, is there, is there one we have someone else scheduled to testify? Um, is it Don Cole? Oh, okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. A quote before. Questions? Questions from the committee? Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Ladies and gentlemen of this committee, my name is Donald E. Cole from Peabody, Massachusetts. I do thank you for this opportunity to give my testimony in support of H3541, calling for a convention of the states. In continuing, uh, the, second uh, the second clause, Article 5, was included and, according to James Madison, approved unanimously and without debate. Colonel Mason's persistence was a wise and noble gift. We must put that inheritance to good use. As Mason and many others, including Adams, feared, the federal government has indeed become outsized, wasteful, and thoroughly corrupt, a soft tyranny transforming into something worse. An Article V Convention of States is necessary to propose limits upon the government to benefit all citizens. Politicians and power brokers of all stripes in Washington and elsewhere enjoy appealing to the fallacy that the United States is a democracy. This or that piece of legislation or statement or social media post is, quote, a danger to our democracy, unquote. Quote, democracy dies in darkness, says one well-known newspaper. We do not live in a democracy. As Adams said, no democracy can ever exist or can exist, quote, unquote. Fisher Ames of Dedham, who would serve in the Massachusetts Convention that ratified the Constitution and as a U.S. representative, was even more explicit. Quote, our disease is democracy. It is not the skin that festers. Our very bones are carious, and that marrow blackens with gangrene. Which rogues shall be first is no moment." Unquote. The United States was constructed as a representative republic with all power not explicitly given to the federal government granted to the several states. But this arrangement has become inverted as Calvin Coolidge said to the Massachusetts State Senate upon his election as president of the Senate, quote, the latest, most modern, and nearest perfect system that statesmanship has devised is representative government. No nation has discarded it and remained and retained its liberty. Representative government must be preserved. Thank you very much uh, for uh, your hard work and your thoughtfulness in considering H3541. Clearly seeing H3541's value, I urge you to wholeheartedly support this resolution. Resolution 
H3541. Thank you. Thank you very much. Questions from the committee? Thank you very much for your time and being here today. Thank you. Thank you all of you from the, from the panel. All right, next up we have panel four. Kathy Dugan, Kanet, I can't read my own writing, Brian Hemingway, and Pete Hunt. Hi, I am Kathleen Dugan from Carver, Mass, and I'd like to thank the members of the committee for taking time today to listen to and consider our testimonies in behalf of H3541 resolution. Thank you. An Article 5 Convention of States would certainly discuss and propose an amendment or amendments that place restraints upon the power of the federal government to tax and to spend. The United States is broke. We are worse than broke. Currently, the debt is $33 trillion, with unfunded liabilities estimated to be as high as $150 trillion. Citizens helplessly watch continuing resolutions being enacted by Congress and signed by presidents of both major parties that violate the Budget Act. Debt ceilings are raised, and the term catches the absurdity. How many times have you raised the ceiling on your home? Coolidge put it quite elegantly in his autobiography, quote, both men and nations should live in accordance with their means and devote their substance not only to productive industry, but to the creation of various forms of beauty and the pursuit of culture, which gives adornments to the art of life, unquote. Wise words from one of the most noblest men to have ever served in the government of Massachusetts. Today, money is printed uncontrollably by the federal government to adorn in ever-increasing benefits that discourage work and increase the tax burden on a populace already stretched to its limits. There is nothing beautiful or cultured about such an arrangement. While previous generations of Americans seem to sacrifice for others not yet born, our federal government seems to be on a quest to see what can be inflicted on those not yet born. Congress has consistently adopted gigantic omnibus spending bills. While relatively novel in the context of the full history of our republic, such bills have been passed for decades. In 1989, Congress pushed through a Budget Reconciliation Act that a then member described as, quote, so voluminous that it was hauled into the chamber in an oversized box its thousands of pages, which the clerk hadn't even had time to number, had to be tied with a rope, like newspapers bundled for recycling. While reading, it was, while reading it was obviously out of the question, it was true. I was permitted to walk around the box and gaze upon it for several angles and even to touch it." Unquote. An Article 5 Convention of States would most certainly consider an amendment or amendments that would require that general accepted accounting principles be forced upon the, general, upon the federal government and a requirement that annual federal budgets be balanced. Once again, thank you for giving us your valuable time. I strongly urge you to fully support the proposed resolution H3541. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Good afternoon. May it please the committee. My name is Kenneth Ehring, and I live in West Barnstable on beautiful Cape Cod. I thank you all for giving me and all of us the opportunity 
to read testimony in support of H3541, the Convention of States. During nearly a decade as an employee at the U.S. Department of Defense, one of our COS Convention of States volunteers regularly witnessed the abhorrent waste of taxpayer funds firsthand. To cite just one example, a piece of research equipment requisitioned at a cost of $500,000 went unused for years. It was finally returned as, quote, excess equipment, at, end quote. Half a million dollars in exchange for nothing. The expenditure did not protect our border. It did not deter a terrorist attack. It did not bring any personal military personnel home. It was simply wasted. The only purpose that the equipment served was an attempt to justify the prevention of cuts to the defense budget. It is standard practice within the federal government to spend allocated funds on unnecessary items and services in order to extinguish those funds and ensure that the next year's budget is not cut and perhaps increased. Our volunteers, our volunteer has read numerous email alerts sent by the heads of finance divisions that urge Department of Defense employees to purchase equipment and supplies to exhaust all available funds. In the example cited, $500,000 can be a decade or more of salary for many, yet the federal government nonchalantly considers such a sum to be of relative insignificance. This is just one line item within one division, within one federal agency. It is self-evident that this is a broken system. We are robbing untold numbers of generations to fund waste and sloth. Prior to our volunteer's time in government, he wondered where trillions of dollars could have gone. He no longer wonders. That is why, in part, he and millions of others support an Article 5 Convention of States. We must at least consider and propose restraints such as balanced budget amendments and the application of generally accepted accounting principles to stop and prevent such waste and abuse in the federal government. Thank you again for allowing me to address this committee today. I appreciate your time and attention. And to this most important matter, and I strongly ask that you pass this resolution in support of H3541, the Convention of States. And I'm sorry I went over a little bit. Thank you for your time. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of this committee. Uh, I want first start off by saying thank you for allowing me to give testimony today on behalf of H3541. My name is Brian Hemingway, and I'm from Plymouth, Massachusetts. Read the op-ed section of most any local newspaper on any given day, and you will likely find calls for term limits for members of Congress. An Article 5 Convention of States will certainly address such calls and reasons for congressional term limits, which are legion. Thomas Jefferson claimed in personal correspondence that, quote, 
I have the consolation of, had, of having added nothing to my private fortune during my public service and of retiring with hands as clean as they are empty, end quote. So wrote the author of the Declaration of Independence. Anyone remotely familiar with Jefferson's financial, financial troubles knows that he was telling the truth and likely one of the most need and money among his peers in government. Yet read those words aloud today to a group of contemporary members of Congress and they would likely burst out laughing. Jefferson, what a fool. Countless members of Congress have dirtied their hands while adding plenty to their private fortunes during their time in office. Time that expands due to the advantages of incumbency. Those members would do well to be reminded of Calvin Coolidge's 1919 message to this general court when vetoing a proposed salary increase. In it, he reiterates the first pr principles of the citizen legislator that the founders envisioned the diametric opposite of the parasites devouring their host that comprise most of the United States Congress today. The same body that the Convention of States movement intends to and will bypass. Service, quote, service in the general court is not obligatory but optional. It is not to be undertaken as a profession of a means of livelihood. Quote, the place each member of the general court will hold in the estimation of his constituents will never depend on his salary, but on the ability and integrity with which he does his duty, not on what he receives, but on what he gives. And only out of the, the bountifulness of his own given will his constituents raise him to power. Unable or unwilling to heed Coolidge's words, members of Congress have developed a disturbing faculty for treating federal funds as a personal bank under the cover of bearing gifts to their constituencies. Again, I'd like to thank the committee um, and say uh, I ask for your support in favor of H3541. Thank you. Thank you very much. And just so folks know who are here, we do now have a fourth chair here. I know there's a lot of panels with four folks if you want to come up here and use that chair. Thank you very much for your testimony today. Good afternoon, my name is Pete Hunt. I'm from Masonet. I'd like to thank the committee for the opportunity to present this testimony in support of H3541. Consider the case of former State Senate Budget Committee Chairman who earmarked $66 million in the Treasury funds to convert an Air Force base into a business park. That business park just happened to be developed by his, the Senator's brother. The Senator also happened to have invested somewhere between half a million and one million dollars in the project, eventually raking in hundreds of thousands on those investments. The Senator answered questions about such earmarks by saying he had not broken any of the Senate's ethics rules. Quite true, and the absolute problem. Congress makes the rules and comically polices, quote, itself Legislating in such a fashion is not in line with the principle of equality before the law. It establishes a hierarchy of privilege and influence. Insiders, wealthy corporations armed with lobbying divisions and political donors are granted exemptions <coughs> and or benefits that most citizens do not enjoy. Any mandate or law that is not equally applied is invalid and unacceptable. And in legislating in such fashion, members of Congress need only worry about preferred clients, donors who can assist with the primary objective, re-election. 
The advantage of, of incumbency are endless. Name recognition and fundraising build upon themselves over the years, making it difficult for even the most able of citizens to make elections competitive. As alluded to earlier, entrenched members of Congress in both of the major parties are often often award monies and rights to family members and preferred constituencies that can assist them in holding and increasing power. The seniority system in Congress rewards longevity with committee chairmanships or ranking minority status on committees regardless of competence or fidelity to the Constitution. Once again, I'd like to thank you for allowing me to provide this testimony in support of H3541 and urge each of the members of the committee to vote in favor of this resolution. Thank you, sir. Questions, members of the committee? Thank, thank you. you very much for your time today. All righty, next up we have Jane Laborde, Mark Marshall, Bill Matheson, and Eric Machino. Welcome. No, please, by all means, begin. Thank you for joining Greetings, us. Greetings, committee members. My name is Jane Laborde. I'm from Granby. Thank you for allowing me to testify in favor of support of H3541. Many of the framers of the Constitution did not envision such concentration and con continuation of power. If they had, they would have never bothered with George III in the first place. Jefferson expressed disapproval to John James Madison in December 1787 concerning the, uh, concerning the lack of term limits for the then proposed Constitution, yet rotation was well observed and respected by the members of Congress until 1901 and the dawn of what was called the Progressive Movement. At that point, most members of Congress did not seek re-election after one term. By custom, one such congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln served only one ter single term by choice. As he demonstrated, rotation of office in office did not ban individuals from public affairs. Term limits would merely place what has become necess a necessary restraint upon endless federal office holding. Political careerism and advantages of incumbency necessitate a need for Article V Convention of States to consider a constitutional amendment that places term limits upon members of Congress. Self-term limiting was also exhibited in the Office of Presidency. Presidents faithfully adhered to the standards set by George Washington until Franklin D. Roosevelt defied it in 1940, necessitating the ratification of the 22nd Amendment in 1951 codifying the two-term two limit for presidents. Because there is no such amendment for the House and Senate, the advantages of incumbency and the ability to direct gifts from the Treasury and amass in power has fostered hundreds of career, careerists in Congress. They claim unlimited power, vote themselves pay raises, and exempt themselves from legislation they pass, proving George Mason's point over and over. Congress, as presently constructed, would never consent to limiting the power and privilege. 
Thank you for allowing me to testify today in support of H3541. I request you also support H3541 to save our country. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the committee. Uh, my name is Mark Marshall from Middleborough, and I appreciate you giving me time today to give my testimony on behalf of H3541. John Adams was not only one of the most accomplished politicians the Commonwealth has produced, but one of the most far-seeing political philosophers. Of such power and privilege that you just heard about, he wrote, quote, it is weakness rather than wickedness which renders men unfit to be trusted with unlimited power. The passions are all unlimited. Nature has left them so. If they could be bounded, they would be extinct. If they surrender the guidance for any course of time to any one passion, they may depend upon finding it, in the end, a usurping, domineering, cruel tyrant. They were intended by nature to live together in society and in this way to restrain one another." Unquote. Term limits would limit power and passion and force careerists to emulate Lincoln and find other outlets for their ambition. Establishing such limits would more precisely align the Constitution with the philosophy and principles of limited government favored by most of the founders. It would also result in the election of true citizen legislators who work not to secure their next victory and sinecure, but the hard-won liberty of the people. The unreadable bills mentioned earlier, cobbled together by unelected staffers and money-no-object lobbying operations are not reflective of representative government and are, in fact, contributing to its demise. As a late congressman who was in office for 47 years said of one 3,000-page monstrosity, quote, I love these members. They get up and say, read the bill. What good is reading the bill if it's a 1,000 pages and you don't have two lawyers to find out what it means after you read the bill, unquote. It's true. No legislator can read or comprehend the bills on which he or she is voting when they are so large. That is why most of those responsibilities should be left to the state and local governments to consider. Thank you once again, ladies and gentlemen of the committee. I appreciate your time today, appreciate all your hard work, and ask that you please vote favorably for H3541. Thank you. Good afternoon, members of the committee. I appreciate this chance to come before you and speak in uh, support of H3541. An Article 5 Convention of States considering amendments to restrain the federal government might also consider repealing the 17th Amendment to restore balance to Congress and give back to the states their proper seat in federal affairs. Adams wrote of the significance of balance in his defense of the Constitution of the United States, quote, where the people have a voice and there is no balance, there will be everlasting fluctuations, revolutions, and horrors until a standing army with a general at its head commands the peace or the necessity of an equilibrium is made appear to all and is adopted by all." Unquote. Senators were to be the voice 
the would be the voice of you, the state legislators in Washington. They were to provide necessary checks upon the executive and quell the potential tyranny of the majority in the House. The 17th Amendment, written and ratified in so-called populist progressive movement of the early 20th century, obliterated that ar arrangement. Upon its April 8, 1913 ratification, senators were transformed from ambassadors to free agents, and they have largely acted as such ever since. This stands against the Founders' vision and has come at a great cost to the two houses of Congress. State sovereignty and Republican government, direct election of senators was said to be more democratic than the language of Article I of the Constitution. But the founders, as noted earlier, did not establish a pure democracy. They established a federal republic and wrote the Constitution accordingly. Thank you again for your time. And um, I'd, I'd like to make one additional point that uh, has come to mind as I listen. Um, th there's question raised as to who gets to choose and who's going to run the thing and run this uh, a convention of the states. In fact, you get to choose who the delegates are. Mm -hmm. And especially the commissioners. There's delegates and there's commissioners. And you get to choose the commissioners and you issue the commission. You tell them what you want them to do. The legislature of the state of Massachusetts gets to do that. You can pull, the legislature can pull anyone who acts outside of the, uh, the role that they were assigned. So thanks again for, for listening to me and for my little uh, diatribe there. And um, uh, Thank you. please vote in favor of House. Uh, House Bill 3451. Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, representatives and senators on the committee. My name is Eric Moschino. I'm from Plymouth, Massachusetts. I'm also here to offer testimony on H3541. It is difficult to argue against the assertion that the United States Supreme Court has become totally unmoored from its original purpose. Justices and federal judges are accorded undue reverence and significance. They increasingly encroach upon the lives of sovereign citizens, yet matters of commerce, liberty, and life and death were not to be in the hands of a few robed attorneys. How did this come to pass, and what can be done about it? Judicial independence is vital in a constitutional republic. This was recognized by those who foresaw the incremental expansion of judicial power. One of those was Brutus writing in Anti-Federalist 13, Brutus, who was sought to be New York Judge Robert Yates, was particularly concerned about how the expansion of judicial power would impact the state. He wrote, quote, perhaps nothing could have been better conceived to facilitate the abolition of the state governments than the constitution of the judicial. They will be able to extend the limits of the government, excuse me, of the general government gradually and by insensible degrees and to accommodate themselves to the temper of the people. Their decisions on the meaning of the Constitution will commonly take place in cases which arise between individuals, with which the public will not be generally acquainted. One adjudication will form a precedent to the next, and this to a falling one." End quote. 
As is evident, and as Chief Justice John Marshall's opinion in the infamous case, Marbury v. Madison, demonstrated, Yates was proven correct. Marbury confirmed the assertion made by Yates and expanded the authority of the court. As Marshall wrote in his opinion, the judicial power of the United States is extended to all cases arising under the Constitution. The expansion of power, unauthorized in the Constitution or by any subsequent amendment, resulted in disastrous interpretations and rulings. Consider the most obvious, then Justice Roger Taney's terrible decision and reasoning in the Dred Scott case of 1856. Taney and a few other justices ruled Scott, a slave, had no standing to sue for his freedom. This did much to bring about the Civil War. Ruling after ruling and edict after edict has followed. Again, folks, I thank you for your time. I urge you to vote favorably on H3541. Questions from the committee? Mr. Chair. Please. I believe there might be two more. Thank you very much for your testimony today. Thank the committee members for allowing me to speak in support of Resolution H3541. Uh, one, of the most, one of the worst decisions the court ever made was in the 1942 case, Wicked versus Filburn. The court ruled that the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution enveloped interstate commerce. Nowhere in the Constitution is this power granted. This increased the power and scope of federal agencies to regulate commerce in an extra-constitutional fashion. Wicked established the dangerous and evil precedent that the federal government can deny access to something or prevent the individual from saying no. Wicked involved a farmer who grew excess wheat that he was not planning to sell and for which he was going to use on his own land. Not trading across county or state or county lines, the court deemed his choice to have somehow impacted demand and that the government could compel economic consumption. This is a gross violation of not only the language of the Constitution, but of individual liberty and decision making, the creation of serfs. Because of the undue and unconstitutional influence given the Supreme Court, Nominations and confirmations regardless the regarding the lifetime appointment of potential Supreme Court justices have taken on a dramatic importance that is out of proportion for a representative government by an order of magnitude. This usually devolve into, into circuses and further divide the Republic. Federal ju judicial nominees are portrayed as divinely inspired or evil incarnate. Neither is true. Judges are fallible human beings to whom excess power should never be given, particularly if it is unchecked by those who abdicate their constitutional duty to balance and see the court as God. And uh, I'd like to thank the committee um, to support us and to join us in this cause. Thank you again for the thank time. You. Thank you. Hello, my name is Stephen Tribblestone. I am from Harwich, and I'm here to speak in favor of H3541. Instead of a people governed by a document that could be held between thumb and forefinger, American citizens are ruled by an ever-expanding annotated constitution.
It weighs 10 pounds and comprises thousands of pages of interpretations of the Constitution by the Supreme Court. It is the product of the expansion of judicial power that began with Mulberry versus Madison, tangible proof of the all-encompassing federal government. That government has fostered a loss of confidence in the sovereignty of this republic, publishing ever-increasing burdens upon the individual and the small business person. It has produced bulky legislation, spilling over hundreds or thousands of pages, and contrived thousands upon thousands of regulations in the federal registry. It employs legion of lawyers to interpret such regulations and has permitted swarms of compliance officers to brandish them like a sword. It has yawned at the piling of, up of debt and erosion of the credit of the United States, accepting and encouraging judicial fiat and creeping encroachment into the private affairs of citizens and private institutions. Taken as a whole, the federal government now, quote, covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated rules. This will of man is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act, but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power compresses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people, till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd." End quote. That was the French writer and philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville in the early 19th century unknowingly describing today's United States. Such an environment drains the spirit of independence nobly won by our forefathers and successfully defended by their descendants. It drains the spirit of self-respect, sensitivity to one's neighbors, and the proper relationship between citizen and government that is vital to liberty. Now it is time to restrain the federal government from acting beyond its bounds. The states can and must do so. Article 5 grants that power. Thank you very much uh, for your time, and I would again like to ask that you report that you support H3541. Good afternoon, members of the committee. My name is Christy Stefano. I'm a resident of West Springfield, and I'm speaking in support of H3541. In the 1970s, political scientist Theodore Lowy pointed out that when Congress established the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in the Consumer Product Safety Commission, it did not explicitly state any policy goals for those agencies, nor provide any standards for their operation or conduct. These agencies were given a free pass to make it up as they went. The fourth branch of government, the administrative state, was never intended to exist. The ruler, excuse me, the rule of the administrative state is anti-constitutional and allows for a vast array of policymaking. It is an oligarchy, meaning a rule by a few for, for their own purposes and supported by interest groups. This leads to the disenfranchisement of, of the sovereign citizen. Congress further ignores its role by per permitting the president to issue executive orders that are often extra-constitutional in nature and practice. Such orders and regulations, no matter who is issuing them, can undo decades of positive accomplishments in weeks or months. There are, there are not subject to, they, excuse me, they are not subject to review or rebuke by the sovereign people. 
This abandonment of proper rules and duties violates one of the most fundamental principles of limited government and ordered liberty. Even if amid the monstrous bills passed by Congress, there are provisions that are outlawed, federal agencies can put them back in because of the authority granted to secretaries of those agencies. In any given piece of legislation, there are hundreds of references to the secretary shall or the secretary may or the secretary determines. Who elected these secretary to shall, may, or determine anything? An Article V Convention of States would likely consider amendment or amendments limiting the power and scope of the federal bureaucracy, likely via a requirement that Congress be made to reauthorize individual departments by standalone reauthorization bills every two to three years. Please, I respectfully ask that you vote in favor of H3541. Thank you. Thank you very much. Questions from the committee? All right, now, is there one other person from the from? Yes? All right, please, come on up. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Holly Say, and I'm a resident of Abington, Massachusetts. I want to thank the committee for allowing me to give testimony today in favor of H3541. The strength of the Republic depends upon adherence to the first principles that were largely established by the leading lights of this Commonwealth, including Calvin Coolidge, who said, quote, resistance to tyranny is obedience to law, and obedience to, to law is, is to liberty, end quote. The federal government in its current form is a tyranny, dispensing unequal justice under the color of law, often the color of regulation or judicial fiat. We are demanding that our federal government adhere to those principles in asking you to join, to again pick up, pick up the standard that was set in Massachusetts. We are asking you to exercise the power given to you through us in Article 5. We do not seek to overthrow the government, disfigure the Constitution, or withdraw or consent to be governed. Ours is a nonpartisan and nonviolent effort dedicated to strengthening the Constitution by returning power not granted to the federal government back to the several states where it belongs. But do not mistake our civility for casual purpose or lack of deep anger. We are joined by millions of citizens whose patience is not wearing thin, but at an end. No federal representative, senator, president, judge, or bureaucrat has the authority to stray from fidelity to the Constitution. Citizens who consent to be governed delegate our authority by communicating how we wish to be represented. We are communicating our support for this resolution. We urge that it be moved to the floor or referred to another committee so that the whole of the general court and the whole of the Commonwealth can engage and be heard. I want to thank the committee again for letting me testify today, and I strongly urge you to support H3541. Thank you again. And thank you. I just want to make sure because that, that I don't that I don't mess this up. We had another panel with, okay, all right. All right, so please, the other members. So I have Amy Trout, Holly, Dave Wilder, and Katrina Russell. Good afternoon, everybody. It is certainly a great privilege in our great nation to have our voice heard at this hearing here today and all other ways that our voice can be heard freely. 
so may it ever be. I, Amy L. Troop of Halifax, am here today in support of H3541. How it works. Amending the Constitution is rightly an involved and difficult process that must clear significant hurdles. Upon 34 state legislators agreeing to the adoption of the Uniform, uniform Convention of States resolution that has been introduced. One, Congress is required by Article 5 to call a Convention of States. Two, all 50 state legislators name commissioners to the convention as each legislator sees fit. Three, the Convention of States is limited in purpose. Again, limited in purpose. That is, to discuss and propose amendments to the United States Constitution that narrow the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government. Four, should a majority of the states agree to one or any of the proposed amendments, Congress can either direct the state legislators to vote upon those amendments or establish ratification conventions in each state to debate and vote upon the ratification of the proposed amendments. Five, as stipulated by the Constitution, three-fourths of the states 38 states must ratify an amendment or amendments to be added to the Constitution. Suggestions that a convention of states would nullify or disfigure the Constitution are unfounded. A convention of states is not a con constitutional convention such as that of 1787, as outlined 38 states must ratify a proposed amendment to add it to the Constitution. Furthermore, if in an Article 5 Convention of States could so easily alter or erase the Constitution, why would the mechanism have been included in the original document? As Madison argues in Federalist 43, quote, it was requisite, therefore, that a mode for introducing amendments should be provided. The mode preferred by the convention seems to be stamped with every mark of propriety. It guards against that extreme facility which would render the Constitution mutable. It moreover equally enables the general and the state governments to originate the amendment of errors as they may be appointed out by experience on one side or the other. Your support for this resolution merely advances it to the larger legislative body for further discussion and reasonable debate. It does not establish or even advance a call for a constitutional convention. A convention of states is not a constitutional, a constitutional convention. It does do the bidding of the people to advance a conversation among and between the sovereign constituents and their state representatives about how best to rein in the federal government and assert for the Commonwealth with the responsibilities and power designated to it by the founders. Thank you for listening. I know I little, went a lot over, but there is very big things to consider here. Um, and we need to save our nation under God. I really pray that you'll save, um, that you'll support H3541. Um, hi, my name is Katrina Russell. I am from Methuen. I want to thank you for hearing our testimony on H3541. 
Um, this country is at war with itself, each tribe trying to destroy each other. But the one thing everyone can agree on is that they hate government, Every, especially the federal government and especially Congress and bureaucrats. Everyone in this country is here because someone somewhere chose to leave behind the land that they were born to, the land that their family, and they left the land of their family and looked for a better place, more opportunity, more freedom. This country was built on self-governance, and it's the reason people still flock here today. The government in this country is chosen by the citizens not to lead us by proxy, but to implement the will of the people who elected them. No one knows this better than the people of the Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the first colony to fight back against the British. When others hear about Lexington and Concord, they have an idea of the shot heard around the world. But I was born in one town, and I work in another. When others hear of Bunker Hill, they know something about a battle of some kind. We know there's a community college there that helps the next generation find their path. In fact, Massachusetts has more colleges than any other state, more education, and of course, the best sports teams. We know what it means to fight and win. We also know what it means to make decisions for ourselves and not depend on the federal government. We were the first to have our own socialized health care, MassHealth. We were the first to legalize gay marriage long before any president entered office in agreement. We were the first to decriminalize marijuana, putting effort on rehabs over jail. Not everyone agrees with everything, but our state decided it themselves. The federal government has never known what we need. The federal government has become a group of oligarchies who vote on whomever gives them the most money so they can retain power. We need to enforce term limits for members of Congress and bureaucrats who they appoint, including the Supreme Court. The federal government is the government of the people, not the government of the elite. We need to make them balance the budget. They always talk about how they won't be able to pay their creditors if we don't increase the debt ceiling. No, we pay our creditors. We won't be able to add to their pet projects if we don't increase the, debt, the credit limit. My son is 10 years old and loves memes. When he was eight, he told me he made up one about a good parent who tells their kid that they can't afford a big vacation, but will take a smaller one instead, compared to the bad parent who says, well, I managed to save $6,000 and the vacation's only 5,000, so let's go, forgetting all the other expenses that go along with it. The federal government in this tale is the bad parent. Only in this case, it's the reverse. The government isn't using their own money. They're using ours. They are, making, they are the children making the decisions with none of the consequences. My 10-year-old knows how to save for the future, and he's already starting to. And the federal government is already spending it. Again, I want you to thank you for your time, and please consider voting yes for H3541. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dave Wilder from Somerset, Massachusetts. Um, I was sitting here, and forgive me, I, I've, I've become more grateful for the time that you guys do sitting here. Um, um, I, I honor your service, and, and while I was sitting here, I was thinking, why am I here? You know, the, the, the last name on the Founders Memorial in Plymouth is a Wilder. My grandfather served in the First World War. My father served in the Second World War in Germany. But patriotism takes many forms, including honest conversation and debate about what is wrong with our country and how it can be peacefully resolved in a way that benefits all citizens. Supporters of an Article V Convention of States believe in the design, necessity, and process of Article V. Your support of this resolution is an important step in reclaiming limited government by, of, and for the people. Our spirit is that of Massachusetts former Levi Preston. His stated motivation for having fought in the American Revolution echoes across the centuries. It animates our efforts and may animate your support for this resolution as well. 
Why did he fight? Well, he said, against the most powerful military in the world, he put it, quote, we had always governed ourselves, and them redcoats meant that we shouldn't, end quote. You can reaffirm what President-elect Kennedy called to mind in, the building in, this, in this building in January 61, quote, concerning matters essential to the self-government and orderly liberty, Massachusetts is a model to all and serves as a beacon for our sister states, end quote. Supporters of an Article V convention of states are confident that you have the courage, judgment, integrity, and dedication to let the light shine on the necessary conversation that must occur in order to protect and advance the first principles so long cherished, nurtured, and advanced here. You can perform the, the role of the founders, many of whom were also member of the state legislators, legislatures, envisioned for you to stand in the breach when the federal government exceeds its limits and becomes tyrannical, and to declare that the Constitution is not a dead letter. Thank you for the honor and um, for me fulfilling my duty of speaking to you. The Citizens Commission um, in 2019 concluded that Article 5 Convention is the way to go. Um, Massachusetts formally declared that Washington can't fix itself, that the Article 5 resolution has to, has to be performed in order to fix certain things in Washington. So it is my hope that you agree with that and your energetic support will come behind H351. Thank you so much. Appreciate all of your testimony today. Thank you very much. Questions, please. Of course. If I may, I think it was mentioned before that the state legislators um, select the commissioners, right? And, and the state legislate the, the states determine what your commissioners to a convention would speak to. So right there, this limitation number one, right? So we also recognize that Congress has proposed thousands of amendments. Only 27 have gotten into our Constitution. It's hard. We know it's hard. And so we know that the only things that are going to get through this struggle are things that are wildly popular with the American population. And those are the three things that we're standing for. Term limits, uh, fiscal responsibility, and stopping government overreach. We need to constrain them to what the Constitution allows. So that, that is enough to keep the conversation on track. Um, I have a family of four, and we can't agree on anything, including what's for dinner. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to come to a consensus. But those three topics have overwhelming, over 70% support of Americans. We also have the, uh, the process of we need 34 to agree to, to assemble, and we need 38 states to ratify. Um, what people also don't understand is in the Constitution, there is nothing to say how Congress shall run itself. So I could sit back here and say, wow, anything can go. They could do anything crazy. Well, in fact, they are. Um, but a, a, con a convention, a state convention, an interstate, con an interstate convention or colonies has happened over 600 times in our history. It's a well-worn path of, of legislative action. So I, I think um, the arguments against the Article 5 are um, difficult to understand. I think the Citizens Commission of Massachusetts was wise in its, in its deliberations and research to conclude that if we're going to fix a lot of things in Washington, it has to be through an Article 5 convention. I think I've taken more of your time, but uh, thank, thank you so much. Thank you for the answer. Thank you, Chair. Absolutely, Representative. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, any other questions?
Alrighty, thank you for your time. We're going to adjourn for 30 seconds. We're going to resume. Uh, I'd like to call uh, Michael Farris. Uh, uh, I'm going to testify briefly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate uh, this committee allowing me to testify, and I testify on this subject all over the country. And I want to just commend you. You guys have showed extraordinary patience today in listening to all this, and I just really, really uh, appreciate it. Um, I am going to deal solely with the, the question of whether it can run away. Let me give you a little background. I'm a constitutional lawyer. I've argued successfully twice in the Supreme Court of the United States on constitutional issues. I have uh, also argued successfully constitutional issue in Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, even though I'm from Virginia. And I have litigated a case under the under Article 5 concerning the process of the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. The assertion that was made by several people earlier, more in relationship to the campaign finance uh, issue, but the, the principles are the same, with whether or not the con uh, a convention would be limited to its subject. The claim was made repeatedly that there is no precedent. Well, in a very technical, precise sense, that's true. Since we've never had a convention, there could never be a legal challenge to such a convention. But that doesn't mean, just because there's no specific precedent, doesn't mean that there's no general precedent. There is general precedent, and it's unassailable. And that all principally arises from the Equal Rights Amendment litigation. In that, case, in that situation, Congress proposed the Equal Rights Amendment with a seven-year deadline. They purported to change the deadline and add three and a half years on that. I was in that litigation representing legislators from the state of Washington. And then subsequently, in the last half dozen years or so, three states have claimed to ratify it despite the seven-year deadline, despite the expiration of the second deadline. And that's been litigated as well repeatedly. And every single court that has dealt with this issue has said that you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. If you say you're coming together for seven years, it's seven years. Republican-appointed judges, Democratic-appointed judges, every single judge has said you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. If you call a convention for a specific purpose, you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream and, and go off for a different purpose. The claim that this was done for the Constitutional Convention originally is a historical fallacy. I published an article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy that refutes this. It's called Define Conventional Wisdom. If you Google my last name, Ferris, F-A-R-R-I-S, and Define Conventional Wisdom, the article will come up readily on the internet for free. You can see that the original Constitutional Convention was not a runaway. The delegates obeyed their instructions that they got from their states. So the reason we have this convention is because Washington won't change itself. I don't care if the issue is term limits or balanced budget or campaign finance. You will be wishing and hoping forever if you expect Washington to fix any of these things, including campaign finance. The only way it's going to happen is to use the safety valves the framers gave us, and that is call a convention of states, and 38 states must ratify. The idea that someone said, that they could change the ratification rule and not have 38 ratifications is not a serious statement. No lawyer would take that seriously. That's just simply fantasy land. I urge you to um, pass this uh, 3541, and I thank you for your extraordinary patience. 
You've been watching a Massachusetts Joint Committee on Veterans and Federal Affairs as they consider Article 5 Resolution numbered H H3541. That application would join the call already made by 19 states for an Article 5 convention for proposing term limits, fiscal restraints, and other limits on federal power. Lobbyists for George Soros-funded Common Cause and League of Women's Voters testified in opposition, reading the same talking points that they always use, the same talking points about a runaway convention and that the Constitution will be rewritten and that you can't trust Article 5 and you can't trust the wisdom of the Founding Fathers. That old trope came up over and over and over again. Um, but then when it came time for our uh, for our resolution, Representative Stephen Xaros, uh, our prim primary sponsor, he spoke very eloquently about our resolution. And then we also heard uh, expert testimony from Michael Ferris and also testimony from so many volunteers and supporters in Massachusetts. It was incredible to hear such wonderful testimony, such glowing testimony from our supporters and volunteers. We're going to be getting reaction uh, in just a moment. And then we're also going to hear from our regional director, uh, Haley Shaw, uh, who's, who was there in Massachusetts and with the volunteers. So we'll be hearing from her in just a few moments. You know, when we have Haley Shaw, so I'll, I'll go to Haley, who is the regional director for Massachusetts. Um, Haley, how are you feeling right now after sitting through that committee hearing? Well, it got off to a weird start at first, um, but, you know, the team was ready and prepared. So I'm, I'm really impressed and I'm really proud of the team and what they did today. Um, if you didn't know, we drove through a bunch of snow to get here. So it wasn't the easiest day to get to Boston. Nobody really lives in Boston on the team and they came from a couple hours away. And that was the most impressive part is that they committed to being here in person. Um, but the committee was great. Our uh, sponsor, Representative Zaros, was wonderful. He gave us a great uh, opening. It was a little chaotic in the beginning. Um, the chair of the committee wasn't there initially. He was, himself was stuck in traffic. So it kind of got off to a shaky start, but the team did a really wonderful job just coming together and keeping their composure and representing Massachusetts really well with a testimony that was a wonderful combination of history and current events. So uh, the team has been practicing this testimony just so everybody knows since September, we had a surge day in early September. And then since then, they've been practicing this testimony every Sunday. And I have to give a little bit of an extra shout out to Matt May, who wrote our testimony. So the team has been working on that, but he's the person that actually wrote this. Uh, these are his words, and uh, he studied a lot of history and put this together. So we have to give him a little bit of credit, but the team came together and presented it just amazingly. So hey, I just want to I just want to point out something that you you said because watching that 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 hearing you could see the stark contrast between our supporters and volunteers and the opposition and the opposition that uh, was there for the other Article Five yeah. resolution not ours but the other one and uh, our our volunteers our supporters they they talked about history they talked yeah. about the process they talked about. Uh, various founding fathers and the wisdom of founding fathers, like John Adams. I heard, yeah. I, I heard uh, uh, many founding fathers brought up. I heard Calvin Coolidge mentioned. It's it's clear to me that our supporters and and the person who drafted this testimony really have a rich understanding of history and a deep understanding of the process of Article Five, 
which is refreshing. What we heard from the opposition is completely fear tactics and fear mongering. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what what can you say about the volunteers on the ground? I know that the, the, the testimony was in part written by someone else, but what can you say about this, the delivery of that testimony? Uh, when you, the, everybody, practiced, everybody practiced this. Like I said, this has been four months, almost five months of weekly practice. Um, everybody knows every part inside and out because, you know, we needed about 20 people to do the whole thing. And so everybody worked on various parts throughout the, you know, the last four months. So the dedication has been amazing. In addition to everything else that the team does, you know, which is meeting, local meetings. Massachusetts does a lot of local meetings and they're really great with that. So um, the time and the dedication for this, this is, as the team says, this is their Super Bowl. So this was our Super Bowl. And so we're gonna prepare and we're gonna practice and we brought on our game day faces uh, and we were ready. Yep, absolutely. What, what are some moments that stood out to you during the during the testimony? I mean, I thought that it opened up amazingly. I thought that Jessica started it off really strong. Um, and everybody did a wonderful job. We do have the best accents in COS. So I hope everybody appreciated that. We have the best accents. And then I was super impressed. We wrapped it up nicely. And uh, our sponsor threw some questions at us and Dave Wilder at the end, he answered those questions really amazingly. So um, I, there's no part in particular that sticks out because I thought the whole thing was amazing. So what's what's going to be next for Massachusetts? Uh, what, what, what can we expect? Um, uh, when can we expect a vote or when can we expect uh, this to go to the next step? We're not exactly sure. I think we're going to have to uh, reach out to our sponsor, Representative Zaros, but also we have a pretty good relationship with the chair, Senator Velas. So hopefully between the two of them, we can get some information. You know, we've got, we've passed this before. So we have that, uh, it's a little bit nerve wracking to have passed this and not sure what's going to happen this go around. But I'm really positive that we're going to pass out of this committee again. Um, just the dedication, I mean, we, we filled that hall. Everybody in there was convention of state. So for them to recognize that people gave up their day uh, to be here in Boston on a snow day, it's hard to ignore that. Um, one more question before I let you go. Can you just tell our viewers, what are some updates that are going on in your region? Because you have Massachusetts, but you have several other states too. Uh, can yep. you tell us the, what, what else is going on in your region right now? So I've got the Northeast Patriots. So we're New England and New York. We've just successfully filed in Rhode Island. So be on the lookout for hopefully a testimony soon in Rhode Island. In Connecticut, in New York, and also Massachusetts, we're gearing up for surge days. So if you're curious about those, reach out to those teams. Um, we're trying to pack the state houses out here for all of our surge days and really just infiltrate with convention of state supporters. Those are the biggest things we've got going on. Um, but as always, we're always busy, always have local meetings. So keep up with Convention of States on social media because we'll tell you what's going on. Well, thank you so much, Haley, for joining us today. And thank you for all the time and dedication that you've poured into, poured into the Massachusetts team and for being there, their leader and for uh, uh, really just helping to galvanize the team to give just such an excellent testimony today. Yeah. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Can't wait to see you on the road in your other Absolutely. states. And when you give uh, 
uh, testimony again in, in, in other states. So we'll have to have you back. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Well, we are going to sign off. Uh, before we let you go, though, I want to make a small announcement about the future of CUS Live. For the past seven years, CUS Live has existed as a weekly show wherein we give you CUS news updates, play a game of Article 5 trivia, and interview a CUS endorser, a legislator, CUS staff member, or a volunteer. We have produced nearly 300 episodes, but as social media is changing, we want to do our best to serve you while also making the best of our staff resources. So we plan, so the plan is that CUS Live will continue to exist, but only with broadcasts like this one, where we provide uh, supporters live coverage of legislative events for COS actions, such as hearings and floor debates. There will be some other new content to anticipate that we can tell you about, but just not quite yet. So stay tuned. Uh, we, we are excited about the changes and welcome your feedback on what you uh, would most like to see from our social media platforms. Also, don't forget, Congressman Chip Roy will join the next COS edition of COS, COS Live at home uh, on January 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can register by going to www.conventionofstates.com forward slash COS at home. Uh, check out new episodes of Crossroads on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern time with Mark Meckler and, and Rita. Um, they're starting a new uh, series on social justice. Tune in to The Battle Cry with Mark on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern time and leave us a five-star review on our podcast because that helps us reach more people and it helps us grow the show. We've got a country to save, so it's time to get back to work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to today's program. For information, please visit www.conventionofstates.com forward slash pod. That's www.conventionofstates.com forward slash pod.